who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we're joined by Jessica Norwood and Rodney Sampson. Jessica is the founder of Runway, an organization that uses entrepreneurship to close the wealth gap in Black communities. Rodney is the executive chairman and CEO of OHUB, a multi-campus entrepreneurship center and tech hub that serves as a startup pre-accelerator, coding bootcamp, and angel investing platform for founders from underestimated and undertapped communities. Here's host and Stanford professor, Chuck Easley. Welcome, Jessica and Rodney. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you guys. So... First, let me briefly share some of the reasons why I personally see this conversation as so important, as well as why I'm grateful to have you both here with us today. Um, It's really been a jarring and eye-opening summer with ongoing injustice and police brutality against Black America, highlighted by George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and now Walter Wallace, to disproportionate impacts of COVID-19 on vulnerable communities. And so from my perspective, I teach and do research here at Stanford on entrepreneurship, and both education and entrepreneurship are intended to be ladders upward in society, providing paths to economic justice and more equitable opportunities. Yet it's clear from the data that historically our institutions have systematically excluded many from these very ladders to better economic opportunities. Uh, Even among those who have, against the odds, succeeded, those narratives are often not highlighted as well as they should be. Martin Luther King, in his speech, The Other America at Stanford in 1967, emphasized the importance of economic justice for social justice, and also emphasized the vital role of the student generation in his speech. So one thing seems clear, which is that the future entrepreneurs who do master these skills involved in creating diverse Inclusive organizations will be the ones who not only move us closer to a more equitable society, but also create the more innovative, higher performing companies. And as we always say around STVP, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. So clearly there's a deep, massive opportunity here for those that have the interest and determination to pursue it. So I wanna start our conversation by painting a picture of the opportunity that equity work presents. Um, So please help us to understand the opportunity that diversity, equity, and inclusion work present for entrepreneurs, innovators, and investors. And Jessica, let's start with you um, and the work that uh, the team at Runway are doing. What's the problem you're working to address and what do you see as the opportunity? Thank you so much, uh, Professor. And um, hello, everybody out in Stanford land. I'm very excited to be talking to you. So Um, Let me calibrate this question a little bit right now with something that I've been thinking a lot about. And um, and I want to say this, and then I want to invite you to do what I do after after I say it and take a deep breath, because the world is not going back to the way that it was before. And this is where you take the deep breath. And I think you've got to let that register and let it um, sit in your body. That is part of the answer to that question, part of the problem between, you know, what's already been mentioned, uh, climate change, um, COVID, um, the disparities in tech access, uh, racism, and a financial system that quite honestly does better when we are at our worst 
is a huge problem that we're facing right now. 60% of Black businesses have closed um, due to the 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 due to COVID, and the Federal Reserve flat out said uh, in its report that the reason that those businesses closed was because of systemic racism inside of the financial institutions. And so I see that as a huge problem to be solved, that those businesses could have stayed open had they been given opportunity along all along the way. And it doesn't have to be like that. That's the exciting part. The exciting part is that with entrepreneurs, such as the ones assembled here, um, we have a chance to really push for another conversation. And I think that opportunity really looks like reimagining right now. The idea that you reimagine every single thing that is out there. This is the time where we are um, in that moment where you've read about it in history books where these great innovations and these great moments happen and you wonder who were those folks who did that? And I think it's the folks right here, right now, listening to the Zoom that would be a part of that opportunity. Rodney. OHUB complements this work that Runway does in many ways. What's the problem you're working to address and what's the opportunity that you see? Well, first and foremost, I'm excited uh, to be here uh, with my colleague Jessica and definitely thank you uh, to you, Chuck, and just the entire team at Stanford and to the students as well who are learning in Zoom land or <laughs> whatever land you're learning in. I want to salute you uh, for still taking your education um, serious uh, during these particular uh, times. You know, I'll, I'll frame uh, my answer this way. As an early outlier in the tech startup and venture ecosystem, I had success. And ultimately, probably knowing it, but without knowing it, actually became a part of the problem. And, and I think as entrepreneurs, we talk a lot about the companies and the ideas, but we don't do enough to really truly understand the problems that we're actually solving. And to solve, you know, to become obsessive about a problem, you have to, you know, definitely understand the problem. So I like to sort of lay a, a foundation here of, you know, around the problem. I'm from Atlanta. I live in Atlanta proper today. We are number one in income inequality in the world. And this didn't just happen this year. We've been trending with this unfortunate statistic for several years now. When we peel back the data, what we saw changing in our macro metropolitan um, area was that there was an influx of high growth technology companies moving into Atlanta, particularly with the slowing down of our real estate industry because of the last economic downturn, we saw a lot of resources being shifted into our innovation economy. Atlanta being home to 26 Fortune 100 companies also ramped up their investments in corporate innovation, in venture, et cetera. So it's like, oh my God, all of these, now all of these buildings are going up, all of these innovation labs, you know, research institutions are expanding, nice, shiny, you know, new buildings, bikes, scooters, the like, everywhere, right? 
everything is awesome, right? But actually for a lot of Atlantans, native Atlantans who happen to be uh, black, things weren't evolving and changing. And so that income equality gap was growing because the density of innovation was displacing the native citizens out of the inner city. So now when you hear inner city in a major city, it's not urban or black anymore, it's inner city specifically because of geography. And that's because black people have been regentrified out of most inner cities and major cities around America. So I'm taking the time to actually clearly define part of the, the problem. Um, Northwestern University uh, released a study maybe three years ago now, City Lab, it's on City Lab's website, where there's a direct correlation between innovation density and income segregation. Now, innovation density was defined by the number of patents filed in Sid Metro and the commercialization and the venture capital invested in said metro. Now, you being in San Francisco, proximate to Silicon Valley, are thinking like, wait a minute, this story sounds familiar, right? You know, tech companies popping up everywhere, density of density of venture capital in the city, yet there's so much poverty, there's so much drugs, et cetera. And so to bring it home, I saw myself as this out, this successful outlier, innovator, entrepreneur, investor, you know, thought I was doing good by becoming successful all by myself, which is okay to do, but realized that I had become a part of the problem. And so to respond to the problem that I was creating as an investor, as a member of the startup ecosystem, it was important for me to do something about it. So OHUB, is the solution to myself, but myself is just an archetype of the density of innovation, edge technology, and venture capital that's fueling 60% of net new jobs in this country. So I'll go into deeper what OHUB does maybe later, but I wanted to start us off by clearly, like Jessica clearly defined the problem she was working on inside of the capital markets with the loss of 41% of black businesses. There's another problem that we're working on related to creating equity, racial equity inside of the technology startup and venture ecosystem particularly. Great, well, we're definitely gonna circle back to a, a lot of these topics that you guys have, have touched on. And, um, you know, Rod Rodney was bringing up the bigger picture context of, of inequality. And Jessica really liked what you had to say about kind of this being an opportunity to reimagine uh, a lot of the systems and, and innovations right now. And so I want to start with those kind of big picture systemic issues. And, and a lot of what we try to train entrepreneurs and innovators to do uh, is around practicing a mindset of opportunity and not fearing failure. So I wonder if we can peel back those concepts a bit and think about how they connect to systemic racism and to institutional barriers. Um, and so you know, I'll, I'll come back to, to Jessica. Uh, let's talk about the financial context in which many entrepreneurs of color are building ventures. How does the right. funding and, and bootstrapping context for those entrepreneurs of color differ? Yeah, I, you know, I think <clears throat> when I'm starting off and I'm, and I'm talking about systemic racism inside of these financial markets as this baseline of what we're up against. 
And I want to start in a really, um, where Runway, where, my, where I work, I start in a really discreet, very early part of, of the story. Um, and there's a particular reason why I do that. Um, there is $60 billion a year that's spent on friends and family money. And, you know, you've probably all heard the term friends and family. It is when people tell you you have a fantastic idea, but you should borrow money from your friends and your family. And, you know, on average, that number is about $30,000 of gift or investment that um, folks receive when they're getting started. But when you look at the racial wealth gap, when you look at that number, you realize really quickly that Black folks are not going to have friends and family that can put that kind of money into their businesses. So this is, this is the beginning of the entrepreneurship journey that I want to lay out for everyone. Right at the very beginning, you're already facing systemic racism and discrimination, right at the very beginning. And so um, when we look at this, and, and what, I, what I really like about how you talk about this, Professor Easley, is this piece around mindset of opportunity and not fe fearing failure. So what happens when you don't have that $30,000 to get going and you can't go to a bank or, or, or friends or family or anybody because those, those loans at the beginning are deemed too risky, right? And so what happens is that this mindset of opportunity for a black entrepreneur, they're gonna always be perpetually living inside of a fear because they can't afford to fail. There is no backup, there is no other money, there is nobody coming. And what they're, what they're having to do is take a little money from their regular, their, their, their main income, or they're having to you know, move money from here or there perpetually in this startup mode. Sometimes even five years still on this whole startup thing. And then the innovation moves forward or somebody else gets a wind of that idea and pushes forward. And because they didn't have the capitalization, those ideas don't ever leave the back of that napkin. And what I like to talk about inside of this and the reason why I runway and why I start off with friends and family is because, as I mentioned earlier about reimagining, and this is a word that I'm going to keep saying a lot of about reimagining, because what I was looking for was an opportunity for people to reimagine what it was like to really be friends and family. What would it look like if the system responded in a way where it gave and, and, and made investments um, as friends and family? And what I call the money that we put out um, is I believe in you money. Because what's lost inside of this is that place where people actually look at Black and brown entrepreneurs and see them as innovators, see them as creators, see them as worthy and, and, and needed in solving the problems that are impacting their communities. So the, 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 the startup part, the sort of bootstrapping, it impacts the psyche, it impacts the actual business itself, because a lot of this, what we're saying is, we don't really find what you have to be credible. We don't think you're worthy. We don't think you're valuable when we don't put those early kinds of resources in. Right. And, and you know, I um, watched the other day, uh, just I recommend anyone to check it out, a video of one of the one of the first entrepreneurs that Runway funded and just hearing her exclamation of, of joy at finding out the news. You can you can really see how much this means to people to be believed in in, in that way. Um, Rodney, much of your work is about creating pathways to opportunity. Tell us more about that and how does your work 
um, situate aspiring black entrepreneurs in closer proximity to opportunities? Absolutely. So for seven years, Opportunity Hub or OHUB, as we affectionately refer to it, has been building what today is now referred to as an inclusive ecosystem building platform. And we didn't call ourselves ecosystem builders seven years ago. We were just doing the work of developing people with the skills and then helping them get the careers and then helping them to start their businesses, helping them get capital and then helping them get access to markets. And all of that is done through you know, a series of programming, a series of events, a series of people helping people access networks that they don't have. And we started off by doing it in spaces. And then we evolved from like a place-based strategy to a programmatic strategy. And now COVID has accelerated our, plat you know, our platform strategy. So we're like a full stack uh, platform now. And when you think of OHUB, I want you to think of it in terms of there's a baseline level of exposure. You know, I grew up watching cartoons after school and G.I. Joe used to come on every day. And every day they would, you know, say knowing was half the battle, right? So exposure to information like this, you know, classes and career pathways like you all um, are privileged to be getting um, as you pursue your you know, undergraduate or graduate studies at, at, at Stanford. You know, when you think about there's so many people in America, period, but particularly in socially disadvantaged communities, which disproportionately is going to mean poor, which disproportionately will mean Black and Latinx, and not all, because, and I like to say this, I don't like to be homogenous when defining black culture because there is a black wealthy class, there's a black middle class, there's a black um, emerging class economically, but when you compare it to our white American brothers and sisters, it's definitely incredibly nascent, but that's not to say that it does not exist. So I don't want to paint a picture that, and this is a part of uh, the stereotyping that has been done as you know, a response to the criminalization of blackness in America, which speaks to what you were saying earlier, Chuck, um, and Jessica, you were alluding to this as well. I said this one time at the Securities and Exchange Commission, I hashtagged it, I said, failure is not fraud. Failure is not fraud. And so a lot of black people carry that weight um, we are seeing it playing out in terms of the criminal justice system and police brutality. But if you take the same intent that the officer had with George Floyd or the officer had with, with um, Michael Brown or um, George Zimmerman, that intent that he had with Trayvon Martin, if you could productize that intent, and then apply that inside of every American institution to the point that you don't even have to perceive of yourself as an individual discriminatory person or racist person. The system has been codified to the point that if we just allow the system to operate as is, 
it will criminalize black people, non-white people, non-Americans, i.e. immigrants, or non-heterosexual, six-gender white men, right? So if you're not that, then everything else is sort of kind of looped together. And not to make this a social science conversation, but I think it's important to understand that in terms of how you can, oh, I'm, such, I'm a great guy. You know, I have a black friend, you know, my, my study partner is, is black. And that may be true, but when you think about what it might've taken for that person to show up as their whole selves, you have to think about that. So when we talk about the cultural competency of developing black technologists, black innovators, black scientists, black entrepreneurs, black investors, you name it, right? Black business leaders, when you talk about that, you have to approach it with the cultural competency lens. And that's, I think, what the secret sauce is of Opportunity Hub. We're able to teach people and help them understand and help them to build their confidence inside of a majority white space that their unfair advantage is their ability to survive, not just survive, but to thrive in survival mode. And I want to say this really quickly to the would-be entrepreneurs here. If you can find you a Black founder that will align with your vision and mission, sky's the limit. If you can find you a Black woman founder, now you really, really, really talk. And all the data is there. So OHUB essentially helps to connect the supply side to the demand side, right? The supply side of talent, founders, to the supply side of jobs and capital. And that's the easiest way I think I can explain what OHUB does without also being as philosophical as I might have just been. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was great. So both of you mentioned COVID-19 and I wanna pick up on that thread in the conversation um, and how the pandemic has disrupted the current environment. So you've got businesses shutting down, you've got migration of people to different parts of the US, um, you've got, pressure on relationships with investors, employees, consumers, huge challenges to fostering connection in communities. So I'll, I'll stick with you, Rodney. What, what should entrepreneurs and innovators be keeping top of mind at this moment, especially when it comes to migrating across the country or business creation in cities like Atlanta? You know, the rules have changed and they literally have changed in a year, less than a year and if you were ever thinking about being a data analyst or a data scientist or tapping into that, now is the opportunity to see and experience the data coming to life. And if, if I were first time founder, and I'm still a founder, I'm always re-energizing myself by reading and learning and studying ideas. Just this week, I am... Um, I guess I had the privilege, I haven't had much sleep, but reviewing 500 plus applications of black founders for our uh, $2 million pitch competition that uh, with, with Steve Case and Revolution and Morgan Stanley. And just going through the data, it's incredible to see the ideas and the products and the companies that are coming forth in this pandemic. And so the thing that I'm inspired about, and I said this the other day on Yahoo Finance, and Jessica, you can appreciate this, is the 41% of business owners who might have shut down, the black business owners, 
The positive news is that they were already business owners and they know how to build a business. We perhaps can help reposition and refocus them onto solving the problems or providing the services that would be more um, in demand during this new normal. And so as you look at the business trends, where are people spending their money on the consumption side? In the enterprise world, what type of software solutions are people looking to hack? You know, if you juxtapose climate change to the political environment and to uh, the racial, you know, reckoning that's going on, plus the coronavirus, you got four sectors that if you found a problem in that sector and you solve it at scale, you would create a successful business and hopefully multi-generational wealth for yourself. One last point, when you talk about the redistribution of talent, we've been saying this for a while, that there would be something that would happen that would cause a redistribution from the coast back inland. And I think what this pandemic is doing, it's sending people from San Francisco, from New York, from these density centers where you can't spread out and where it's perhaps easier to, you know, to, to, to get COVID-19, you know, if you're spread out a little bit more, it might be a little um, better to navigate. And so you're seeing folks leave these density areas and redistribute themselves back into the middle of the country and into the South. And I think it's a great thing if those cities would reposition themselves to reinvest in the talent that's there to get ready for those companies that may be moving there and may be higher. And so I see it as a huge opportunity. I mean, even when I think about real estate brokers, if you were focused on certain markets, if you can connect with people in another market, you know, you can then uh, re invigorate your business. So I think there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, we could hack 2020 all year and look at the problems that have to be solved. And there's going to be a lot of people that make a lot of money doing it. Definitely. So Jessica, you're an investor. Companies are relying on your financial support. Tell us the story about what's happening in your relationships and how you're navigating this time with principles of equity. Yeah, I mean, I, I I love, I could listen to Rodney talk all the time because one of the things uh, you talked about with OHUB is that secret sauce around really understanding culture. And I think that that is uh, very much, you know, what we do at Runway. Um, you know, right at the time where we really understood that COVID was was happening and it was, it was serious, um, right around uh, the end of March or so in April, um, I would talk to my team and um, first wanted to make sure that they were all sorted out and situated. We're all entrepreneurs ourselves. And so um, just making sure that, that the team was good. And then we reached out to our investors um, and um, talked to them about the capital needs and things that we were, we were looking to do at the time. And one of the things that we really practice at Runway is what we call right relationship and Right relationship is really all about um, dis um, disrupting those power dynamics, uh, really leaning into agency and interdependence. Um, so we practice with uh, our community right relationship, and 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 that goes from um, the investors all the way to our our borrowers. Um, 
I believe that, you know, how you start is how you're going to end. And so if the dynamics are off right in the beginning around moving the money, then, then inevitably I might pass that along to my entrepreneurs. And that's something that we just don't want to ever do. So we talked about what kind of capital we needed and very quickly because we've been sitting in community and building relationships. And these are investors who've already decided very strongly to practice their investments through an anti-racist lens. They're very clear what needs to be done right now. This is, this is, it. This is go time for all of us who have been in this work for a long time. And we were able to then talk to our entrepreneurs once we kind of had an, an eye on what monies we could raise and, and what we were looking to do. And we asked the entrepreneurs, you know, what would you need? We, we ended up giving um, more marketing support. As an investor, this is what we're doing, paying for more marketing support so that they could pivot their businesses more online. Um, we spent more money um, on business support mentors and so forth. This is the investor paying for more mentors to work with them to actually revisit their business models, to really look at what their strategies are going to be, and to get some of that emotional support. Because this is a this was a very panicked time where you're trying to parent and you're growing a business and you're doing all of these things. So even just emotionally being able to talk and have somebody walk with you through some of those things. And then we ended up giving universal basic income to all of our portfolio. And the reason that we did that, nobody had done universal basic income for black businesses. But the reason that we did universal basic income and not a grant or anything like that, we wanted them to know, use the money however you need to use the money. Use the money for childcare, use the money for groceries, use it for your rent or your mortgage, use it to reinvest in your business. We want you to make it because if you make it, we make it. And so we, um, we, we, we did universal basic income payments. And I'll never forget when we talked to our entrepreneurs, we had them all on a community uh, Zoom call and we let them know that we were gonna be able to do uh, payments for the next couple of months, along with other sort of deferments and workarounds and other things that we came up with. And um, we all had the ugly cry, like we had to go off camera for a second and just cry and then come back on. And one of the entrepreneurs said, and I'll never forget this because it just kind of just dropped into my body in such a way, said, you've done more for me and my community and my business than the federal government has. And what I, it was deep. And what I realized at that point, it didn't take much. What it took was understanding the culture. What it took was really understanding what these business and these entrepreneurs were facing and going through. And it took us making an investment that we were going to make it together. That if, 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 if this was going to work, we all needed to be there on the other side of this. And I'm excited because 100% of my businesses are now open. Um, and where the national average is around uh, PPP uh, resources, I think was like around 2%, the payroll uh, protection program, um, 87% of our businesses got those resources. And this was because it's a black woman and brown woman led financial organization that is made up of artists and entrepreneurs and mothers and, and lovers and friends who are really practicing that level of equity that we're talking about. And sticking with you, Jessica, for our audience of aspiring entrepreneurs and innovators, I can already see in, in the Q&A, um, you know, many of them are inspired to create meaningful change in the world. Uh, but at the same time, tackling system issues can seem daunting. 
why, why in, in your mind, should entrepreneurs feel empowered and, and optimistic? And, and what do you think success looks like for racial, economic, and social justice? Oh, such a good question. Um, you know, I think this is an incredible time. And Rodney touched on a lot of those um, issues that, you know, when we look at, um, if, we, if we just mapped out 2020 and really looked at all of the intersecting points and some of the, um, the issues, we could find um, many, many, many opportunities to, to solve for the, for the most pressing needs. Particularly right now, we have a system that has left us in a place where we're not able to really be with and care for our loved ones. We, we're hungry, we're throwing away food, we want housing and houses sit uh, empty inside of portfolios. There's a lot of inequity happening right now that um, needs creative people to, to solve. And so um, I think the times are wonderful. I think this is the time where we get to really lean into this reimagination around what would it look like if this financial system really loved black and brown people? What would it do? What would be the outcomes of that? Um, and I think of the, the sort of in big picture of all of these things, like what, what would it be? I think we would be moving, we would be moving to, to borrow your, your word again, Professor, opportunity. We'd be moving into an opportunity and abundance framework in the way that we built, instead of a fear and a scarcity model when we built. And I think that there is, no, I know that there is, um, there is generational wealth to be had by actually thinking and moving more inside of the framework of abundance and opportunity. And that's what it would look like in the end. We would, we would be healed. We would be healing. We would be rested. Um, we would feel, and particularly for Black businesses and Black entrepreneurs, they would feel finally comfortable enough to stand inside of joy. And this is a big, this is a big deal because we haven't always had the luxury to not be pushing and running and, 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 and doing, but to be able to sit for a moment and actually feel a joy and lean into it. That to me would be the outcome of what, um, what happens once we create this new thing. Right. So I, I want to get to um, Q&A from the students. Uh, and so please feel free to, to put your questions in, up, upvote other questions. But before we turn to the Q&A, let me go back to Rodney. In, in your view, if our audience members take one message away from this talk, what do you want them to understand? I want them to understand that despite the environment we're in, it may seem hopeless. It may seem that there's despair, you know, and I'm talking as a black man in America that when I was coming along, we were suggested to be an endangered species and that we wouldn't live to 27. And I'm now here at 47. So if I can maintain optimism despite of any tweet, any post, any news, anything that I might hear, then I know and know that you can do it, you know, as, as well. This is an entrepreneurship class. That means your mindset should be entrepreneurial. 
And so I want to encourage you to be a different type of entrepreneur and to really think about everything through an anti-racist lens, a lens of racial equity. Nothing in America that has been achieved as it relates to the emancipation of chattel slaves, to uh, demolition of Jim Crow, to unfair housing, unjust education, and now access to economic opportunity has been done in this country without white allies. And those of us who live long enough, you know, I'm part of the FUBU tribe too, for us, by us. I grew up in Black Atlanta. Everything I saw that was inspiration to me growing up in Atlanta was Black. And when I got to Tulane as an undergraduate, it was a shock to then, it was a culture shock to then have to learn how um, to vibe with my Jewish brothers and sisters and with my Latinx brothers and sisters, my white brothers and sisters. But I grew up in Atlanta seeing Black excellence. And I saw you all use that hashtag. And what I want to encourage you all to do is since you're at this age where you are pre-career, many of you, in your respective lives, is to become that ally. Now that means you're gonna have to do some work. It's okay to read all the books, read all the articles. That's a part of the work, but actually being uncomfortable to exist in black spaces, bring value, listen, never see yourself uh, with a savior complex, come to learn and understand that we are here to build and we might as well be building together. And so that's the message I really wanna, really wanna send home, particularly to the students. Uh, we could talk technical shop all day. Maybe we'll get into some of that in the q and I love doing that. But I wanna see you all as the future allies. I wanna see you on cap tables. I wanna see you as technical co-founders. I wanna see you as advisors. I wanna see you making introductions. And what I want you to do is make sure that you become colleagues and associates with your black and brown students on campus. All right, you on the path to being woke now, so you're gonna have to like embrace it and be responsible for this conversation we're having today. Awesome, awesome. So Rodney has uh, foreshadowed the the student question that I wanted to pick up on as well. So, so maybe I'll turn turn to Jessica to give her take on this one. The the question that came in from the students was, what's the best way for non-black populations to position ourselves as an ally to black businesses outside of simple consumerism? Yeah, I you know as as usual, Rodney is on on point. Um, I really think that um, when I talk about this idea of reimagining, so the invitation is, if you want to get into this allyship or you want to get into a relationship um, where you're really where you're really working, you're really about that. You woke, you pass woke, you are activated at this point. Um, <clears throat> you are reimagining everything. 
Um, you are moving from a place of an anti-racist lens inside of your analysis of everything from your consumptive behavior to your investment behavior, to where you bank, to where you shop, every possible thing you can think of. You should be analyzing and thinking through those things with an anti-racist lens. The reason you do this is because I want you to build up the habit. I want you to get into practicing. I want this to become so second nature that you breathe in and you breathe out and you're instantly already in the flow already in the conversation. So that's the first thing is, if you're not currently studying with someone inside of this, uh, in, in an anti-racist frame, find some credible folks to work with. The other thing you're gonna need is you're gonna need community. You need community because you need accountability. So you're out here thinking differently and moving with this anti-racist lens. I wanna see you be with other folks who are doing the same thing because accountability is made and community is built when we all start moving together, when we're doing this interdependence thing, where we're realizing that um, your success is my success and so forth. So that requires community. I think this idea that entrepreneurship is something that you're going to go off and do on your own and then voila, bring it back, isn't going to work in this context. It is going to have to be something that, um, yes, you look at the data and you make sure that supports, but you are going to have to deeply rely on your conversation, your community, um, and your relationships to pull a lot of these things off. Um, I think I would say the last part inside of all of that, uh, my recommendation is why you're thinking differently to be um, to be bold, to be bold with your love of humanity, to not give up, to go really, really, really big, like blow yourself away, like surprise yourself. Like when you wake up, you're like, whoa, did I come up with that? Give yourself that level of spaciousness right now. Be incredibly bold with your love for humanity and think really deeply about what kinds of conditions really make a whole and healthy and loving community of folks. That's where I would go. I would spend time in that place. I'd spend time, as much time as you, as we think about what X return is going to be or what evaluation or what, you know, or what, what, what other metrics and things, spend more time right now really thinking about the boldest way that you can show your love for humanity. Awesome. The next question from, uh, student that I want to get to. Um, so uh, this person says, thank you both for being here today. This has been a great opportunity to hear about macro systemic issues. As a member of the Stanford community, what can we as an institution or, or what can educational institutions in general do to better combat these issues? Uh, Rodney, do you want to take a stab at that one? Sure. Um I think that understanding the depth of the problem is, you know, and I keep going back to that, but I mean, we're having an entrepreneurial conversation, right? And I think, you know, when, when you see a problem that has so much depth to it and the response is normally performative, and you can't understand why there's, you know, a retroactive response that may seem negative. It is because you don't understand or haven't taken the 
time to understand the depth of the problem at hand. And you can pick one, whether it is police brutality or the criminal justice system. And when you start to look at the data and you understand that private prisons use, and public prisons use third and fourth grade reading levels to determine how many prison beds they will need in the future. You know, in terms of like developing a performer, you know, think about it. There's someone right now that has developed a PL based upon third and fourth graders not being able to read. That is their unit economics. And you think about the history of police patrols in America and how police patrols were created to round up and take slaves back to the plantation that had escaped and how those police patrols became deputized after the emancipation of the Southern slaves and throughout Jim Crow. And so when you look at the evolution of an institution and the culture of that said institution, then you see that this is a much bigger problem than what's being said. So when people react to it, it's like millions of people around America were, were protesting because of George Floyd. And they're like, it's just one guy. And it's like, no, it's, 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 it's eight minutes and what, 40 some odd seconds that is representative of 400 years of police brutality. And then you get some folks who say, well, you know, what, what about, you know, black on black crime? First of all, there's no such thing as black on black crime. Most crime statistically is proximate, right? You know, most folks who are committing crimes are lazy. They just, you know, it's like we live in the same community. The, 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 it's a myth that a lot of people leave a community, go to another community, and that's where most crime happens. Crime happens internally. So just like it happens in the black community, it happens in the white community. It happens in communities where people live. But if you only look at it from a performative or a surface level basis, you're always gonna have a response, whether it is your rhetoric, whether it is your protest, protest. And that's why we saw a lot of tech companies, a lot of institutions hashtagging Black Lives Matter. And a lot of folks like Jessica and I were offended by it because we're like, if all you can do is come up with a hashtag and say, you know, at this company we believe in yada, da 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 and we're thinking about, we're thinking about what we can do next, where you got all of these subject matter experts that can literally tell you how to create racial equity today in your organization that will yield a greater economic output for said organization. We're sitting back like, really though? For real? Seriously? And so, to summarize that, I would say that don't just look at anything or a problem. At, do your customer discovery on solving those problems and do your own work. And if someone else does your work, you're going to have to figure out how to pay them or compensate them or bring value to them, even if you're on campus and you want to become anti-racist and you want to become an ally, you showing up 
buying me a beer and asking me a ton of questions is labor on my behalf. We've got to figure out how to make it you know, reciprocal in that. There's a long way of answering it, but hopefully that I was able to drill down on understanding the depth of the problem, no matter the problem, no matter the systemic issue. Definitely, definitely. So, you know, we've touched on so many big issues and so many big topics here from, from you know, the opportunities out there uh, to the impact of COVID-19 um, to a lot of these systemic issues with our institutions. Um, you know, we could go on on for a long time here, but uh, unfortunately, we've, we've run out of time. So I just want to end by saying thank you so much, uh, Jessica and Rodney. This is a, a really amazing discussion, and I know you've sparked a, a lot of inspiration and, and a lot of thoughts uh, out there. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.